You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. Welcome to a much-delayed uh, episode of Dresbert. I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of the uh, international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy uh, and the author of Spoiler Alerts for The Washington Post. I'm Heather Hurlbert. I run the New Models of Policy Change program here at New America. And as you notice, this is the Heather and Dan have both been on vacation. So watch <laughs> as we try to trip each other up and you can play along from home, trip us up and send us send us tweets pointing out where we made even more mistakes than usual. But hey, this is true. We are we are out of dialogue shape. And so <laughs> I fear that because we have some slightly sensitive issues to, to open up with in terms of the conversation. Um, All right. But as we are talking right now, the uh, your town is is replete with rumors uh, about who uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are going to select as possible vice presidential candidates, and both campaigns apparently are making this feint towards ostensibly picking a military person. Well, this has been going on for a number of months, actually. And I, I do before, we're gonna keep you all hanging for just another second about what it is we're gonna say. While I note that, you know, since maybe March, um, there have been sort of whiny editorial after whiny editorial about, you know, why don't the Republicans draft a military person? Why doesn't Hillary Clinton run with a military person? Why isn't there a military person as a candidate? As a, why don't we have a military person as a third party candidate? Where have you gone, Dwight D. Eisenhower? Um, and you know there are a lot of um, there are a lot of really good reasons why we don't have any of these things. Number one among them being that while yes, you have to be very political with a small P to be a four star general. Um, being a general and being a politician are not the same career field. And, um, you know, for every Dwight D. Eisenhower, the field is littered with Wes Clarks and um, what was the name of Ross Perot's running mate? Um, James, Stockdale, James Admiral Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale. For every Dwight D. Eisenhower, there are half a dozen of uh, Admiral Stockdales. So speaking of which, that perhaps um, <laughs> leads us seamlessly. No, no, no. I'm going to let you twist a little longer. Okay. Uh, Dresner, that that leads us pretty seamlessly to General Flynn. Uh, yes. And the and the Trump campaign. Well, the Trump campaign, after having said that it was vetting a number of generals, and you know, sort of every general that the media could think of, saying, "Well, no, that would not be me, and it will not be me." You know, finally, we seem to have found a general that wants to be vetted by Trump. And I, I have to admit here that I. I got to say, I had been blissfully, fairly ignorant of, of this gentleman's oeuvre before this. Um, yes, I, you know, I have not been, it's not quite in my wheelhouse. I do remember that he left under a pretty strong storm, you know, cloud of controversy um, in which Flynn, I believe, claims that he was forced out uh, by the White House. But I have heard contrary stories suggesting that if he was forced out by the White House, it was in no small part because the DNI and others wanted him forced out uh, because he wasn't playing nicely with others. Um, you brought up, you know, Stockdale and and uh, and West Clark and, and Eisenhower. I'd say Flynn reminds me of a different uh, military person who then tried to run for vice president, which is Curtis LeMay, um, in the sense that uh, Flynn sounds slightly insane uh, when it comes to what should be done with respect to the Middle East. And indeed... I believe he's got a book that's coming out uh, that he co-authored with Michael Ledeen, um, 
about what to do with the Middle East, which implies things like generations long occupation or, or uh, land involvement uh, on the ground with respect to either Syria or Iraq. Um, which, by the way, suggests to me that even if that's the Ladine part of, of, of the two of them talking about that in the book, it does suggest to me that Trump's not actually going to pick him. Heather? Heather? I would assume that also, and it, it does sort of, yeah, can, yeah, sorry, we're having a little connection glitch. Um, it okay, does, I got that. I got you back now. Go ahead. It does bring me back to my original point, which is that there's this, this kind of quaint American folkway of believing that um, four-star generals are somehow sort of these nice middle of the road, safe, maybe even a little boring, but you know, very sagacious kind of grandpa figures like as we all picture Dwight D. Eisenhower now. But um, you know, if you actually That is look not at how the, I figured that is not how I think of James Mattis, but go ahead. Well, it's not how you think of James Mattis. It's not how you think of David Petraeus. It's not how right. you think of Stan McChrystal. Um, yeah. And frankly, it's not how anybody who actually interacts with recently departed four stars on a regular basis. I mean, again, those are like professional politicians. They're very elite jobs. There's a very steep pyramid to get there. And to get there, you have to be extraordinary. But just like politics or anything else, to get that far up the pole, you have to be extraordinary in some um not so sweet and grandfatherly ways, as well as the sweet and grandfatherly ways. So it, it just, it's really been extraordinary to me what a willful misunderstanding our um, civilian political media has of, of what it is to be a top military commander. So I would say a few things on this. The, the first is, is that to be fair, and I'm going to be as generous as I possibly can to the Donald Trump campaign, it does make sense that he would look for a military person to be his vice presidential pick. Um, because let's face it, he's not terribly strong on national security and presumably the one thing that a general would bring to the, the party is strength on national security. And at the same time, it would allow for him to somehow make the pick seem apolitical in the sense of, you know, he's picking another, literally an outsider, you know, to the system. Um, so I can understand those appeals to it. Um, that said, uh, it has been fun watching Flynn do a complete 180 um, over the weekend trying desperately to audition for this position uh, by first saying that he was pro-choice and then a few hours later completely reversing uh, that position, realizing that that was going to cost him uh, in terms of the VP pick. And it actually I think, highlights a different aspect of, of the challenge, I think, that um, the generals have when they try to enter um, fields other than the military, which is to say that you are absolutely correct Generals have to have some grasp of politics and, and organizational skill and will in order to be able to progress to where that you know to, to become a four star. I think that's absolutely true. On the other hand, Flynn's abortion flip flop also highlights another thing that I think generals um, don't realize until they enter the real world, which is there are civilians who are probably better at politics than they are. Um, they might be good at the politics of the military. But the kind of mass media campaign politics that we're dealing with in, in you know, the current universe is a very different set of skills some, you know, required than what a four-star general has. Um, and, you know, you saw that with, let's say, Stockdale when he was uh, debating in 1992. And he was a very decent man, 
um, you know, that was clearly looked like a deer caught in the headlights. Um, and I suspect that if, if Trump or Clinton were to pick a military person, that is what would happen if they were actually, you know, actually selected. They would they would come in with a great reputation and then that reputation would crash and burn pretty quickly the moment they started making gaffes in the political realm. Because, I mean, indeed, our whole civilian political environment is set up to make as many people as possible look as foolish as possible. I will, I will also say that I think the other, the other trend in American life, which is understandable but really troubling that this, that this points up, is the desire that, oh, all of our problems could be fixed if only someone would come along and tell us to salute and we'd all salute and, and fly right and everything would be good. Whereas, in fact, you can only imagine, I mean, imagine the first time you send a retired four-star up to, to break a tie in the Senate or to broker a deal in the Senate. Um, and you're not used to being in a room with 100 people, all of whom think that they outrank you in some critical way. So, right. you know, we just, it, it bespeaks... It just it bespeaks a desire to take a shortcut out of actually running our own political system, which is you know the biggest long term. No, and I, th I mean, unfortunately, I it is emblematic of a deeper problem, which in some ways also helps to explain the rise of Trump, which is you know, and I've talked about, I've banged on about this for years now, which is that if you take a look at you know either Gallup or uh, the General Social Survey or Pew, all of these survey data shows the exact same phenomenon, which is trust in every major political institution, every major institution in the United States has had a secular decline over the last 30 or 40 years, with the exception of the military. Um, and this is in some ways the inevitable outgrowth of that, which is if there is no faith in civilian politicians, it is understandable that folks like, you know, David Ignatius and others start asking for, you know, a white man clad in horseback, you know, someone riding on a horseback to somehow rescue the country, which is a very disturbing political fantasy, I would argue. Yes. So now um, this brings us to the Watch Dan um, Wiggle part of today's episode, folks, because it turns out, as I alluded to earlier, that it's not only the Republican Party that is tempted by the lure of a man in uniform. Um, and just as we were getting ready to tape this episode, uh, news broke that the Clinton campaign is vetting none other than Dan Dresner's boss, um, Admiral Stavridis, um, he retired head of Pacific Command and retired um, head of NATO, and now um, head of the Fletcher School. Uh, so, um, and this is, it's a, you know, Stavridis is a really interesting both sort of exception to everything we've just said that potentially proves everything we've just said at the same time because he is someone who for much of his career really has presented himself as a soldier diplomat has sought to know the civilian side of the house and has sought to work in the civilian side of the house you know in a way that, that not every not every four star has and he's been widely viewed as a political comer in the in the years since his retirement um, and is, is well-known and well-liked in, in Clinton land. So all of that is fascinating, but, um, you know, one, I personally, and as I say, I really, from what I've seen of the guy, I like and admire him, um, I wrote a review of his book when it came out. Um, ah. Thought he had an interesting, you know, thought, I thought he had 
engaged with sort of the civilian world around him more than many other retired generals who write books, mm -hmm. um, and I'll just leave that there. Uh, but, you know, you're still, um, as we used to say when people would retire from the military and run for Senate, you know, the Senate is not an entry-level job. And the vice presidency, much as once you get there, it may seem like an entry-level job, the uh, campaign is not an entry-level job. So I'll be, I'll be very curious to see where this goes. Uh, yes. Um, so as I was saying beforehand, this is a lovely turnabout uh, in that normally I'm the one asking you slightly discomfitting questions uh, about the Clinton campaign, given that you obviously you know, have something of a role um, in that campaign and now suddenly I find myself on the reverse uh, uh, end of that and I now have much greater sympathy for you than I did before um, Thank you Admiral Stavridis Sorry, go ahead Thank, thank you Admiral Stavridis I said, Dresner finally has sympathy <laughs> for me um, I know you have to get going but I do want to close with one last point which is we have gone back and forth um, with respect to the GOP national security crowd and whether or not they would back Donald Trump or not. Um, I've been in the very firm never Trump uh, position, including the I was one of the signatories for that national the, that group of 121 uh, Republican national security professionals who said they would never work for Trump. Uh, you had suggested, you know, at various points during the primary phase that once he gets the nomination, there might be some buckling among that group. Uh, however, in the interim since we've talked last, I believe both the Daily Beast and Politico have come out with stories in which they talked to various people in the Never Trump movement. And I believe there was one person who off the record said, yes, I would probably go work for Trump. Um, but the very fact that that person said it off the record is in and of itself indicative of the fact that most of the people who have signed these uh, petitions uh, remain very firmly in the Never Trump camp. You are right, Professor Dresner. I underestimated the Republican national security community. I overestimated the Republican political community. I agree uh, that. I gotta say. Yes, um, no, that's an entirely fair point. And indeed, in fact, one of the, the, the truly uh, the most painful thing to watch over the last six weeks or so has been the tortured language that various members of either, you know, the Republican uh, representatives in the House or senators or governors or what have you have tried to say whenever Trump says something stupid, um, which is like, you know, the, the, along the lines of, well, you know, he's made mistakes, but he's sounding like he's on the track to sounding like a good candidate um, or, or things like that. It, it's it's you know, I think I tweeted at one point. It's almost like listening to, you know, defenders of Hannibal Lecter say, well, you know, he hasn't eaten anyone in a week. And so we think he's on the track towards normal behavior. Yeah, I uh, I will recommend further further to my acknowledging that you were right about your foreign policy colleagues. I will recommend uh, Corey Shockey's essay, which is a very lovely and heartfelt and personal essay about what it's like to be a brilliant national security mind and also a Republican. <laughs> um, that that describes Corey to a T, in fact. <laughs> um, but um, you know, having having said that, I I was stunned. I was stunned that nobody followed Mark Kirk actually. Oh, um, and, and unendorsed. And un uh, Trump. I mean, as however embarrassing unendorsing is, and however much it may be like you know you can't be a little bit pregnant or you can't be yeah. a born again virgin, but. Um, yeah. So um, before you and I speak again, we will see the conventions. 
and we will have vice, actual vice presidential vice presidents. Yes, and I will. Point. I will note. Um, I will note that um, it does look to me like the Democrats are going to have um, some some fighting around the Iran and Israel language, which will be interesting to see. Um, and and the, the Republicans will just have a lot of fighting. Well, I was going to say we haven't uh, we haven't seen the Republican platform, but I will note that that what we. What we learned today is that the platform committee thinks it was a bad idea to get rid of Gaddafi and also thinks that there have been no LGBT victims of ISIS. <laughs> so on that note, ladies uh, and gentlemen, I, I, give you, I give you the United States of America. Yes. No, you, I will close with this. You asked me about my, my reaction to Brexit. I have to confess this is a secret petty reason why I've enjoyed Brexit. It's that it has actually made a country look more politically dysfunctional than the United States. Well, um, yeah, in a month we'll see whether they still have a Labor Party or not. It's a fair point. So that's right. possibly more cheerful than watching our conventions, although possibly not. Um, yes. Professor Dresner and all of our esteemed fans, we will see you in August. See you in August. Take care. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.